Tess White disappeared in May 2016, it had all the makings of a case that would go cold. But a series of events all came together to take this case from potentially unsolved long-term missing persons case to a solved case. I'm Charlie and welcome to Crimelines. Welcome to Crime Lines. Welcome back if you've been here before. Just a quick reminder that if you do want more content, you can check out my Patreon for that. You do get ad-free episodes at the $2 tier, so if you don't want ads, that's a pretty easy way to listen. You can also take the feed from Patreon and have it go straight to most podcast apps. So you don't even have to use the Patreon app. You can probably use the app you're using and just get the Patreon ad-free feed directly to you. At $3 a month, you also get a bonus episode every month. And now at the $5 level, there's a second episode where I talk with another podcaster about a case. This month, I told Eleni from True Crime Fan Club a haunted house story, and I got her opinion as someone in the paranormal community. As a skeptic, I am completely unable to evaluate these types of cases, so it was interesting to have someone with a very different perspective on. I know my Patreon tiers are relatively low compared to a lot of other shows, but it is what works for me to help me make the show while also keeping the prices accessible to those who are interested in getting extra content or ad-free content. So let's get on to this week's episode, which is one where we are going to follow the timeline as it unfolded because everything is important here, and it all doubles back. On May 6th, 2016, right around 10.30 in the morning, a man walked into a Milwaukee bank and waited until a teller called him to her window. When he got up there, he leaned towards her and mumbled something. The teller told him she couldn't understand him, and he spoke louder this time, telling her, Give me the money, no funny business. He then pulled back the sleeve of his shirt and exposed what looked to the teller like a gun. He repeated no funny business as she pulled the money out of the drawer and put it on the counter. The man then asked her, where are the hundreds? So the teller moved to a second drawer to get more cash, but the guy very suddenly grabbed what was already on the counter and left. As soon as he did, the teller hit the robbery alarm and another teller called 911. The police responded to the scene and pulled the CCTV footage. Banks in 2016 had high-quality cameras at every angle. And this robber did very little to disguise his appearance aside from wearing just normal sunglasses. They were able to pull several very clear still photographs, and released a few of them to the local media. On May 10th, two anonymous tips came in saying the man in the photos was 44-year-old Shante Pearson. An officer pulled an old booking photo from one of Shante's previous arrests and compared it to the bank security footage and also thought it looked like a match. So an arrest warrant for Shante was immediately issued, but it had been a few days since anyone had seen him, and he was not at his residence. The next day, the day after these anonymous phone calls, on May 11th, a police officer in Denver 
pulled over a white Chevy Avalanche for failing to dim their high beams when approaching oncoming traffic. This is a very minor traffic violation. The plates on the truck were from Wisconsin. The driver was a woman who identified herself as Crystal Jelinski, though she had no ID on her. The officer asked to see the passenger's identification, and he handed over a social security card with the name Shantae Pearson on it. While the officer went back to the car to run their names and the plate number, the man in the vehicle took off running. He didn't make it far before an officer caught up with him and detained him. They learned why he was running when they ran the name Shantae Pearson and the warrant for the bank robbery from Wisconsin popped up. With this information, they asked Crystal for her social security number. She had no identification on her and they wanted to verify her identity. Crystal claimed she didn't know the number off the top of her head. So they used a rapid mobile fingerprint reader on her and it came back that she was not Crystal Jelinski. She was Tiffany Jelinski Simmons. Tiffany had given her sister's name to the police. Tiffany also had a warrant out for her arrest at the time, but I can't figure out what it was for. Nowhere in the reporting specifies it, and then when I go look in the Wisconsin court records, I can't really find what it would be for, except that In November 2015, she did have an arrest for retail theft, and she had been released on some type of extended supervision probation situation in late February or early March. The warrant may have been in relation to a probation violation. Either way, they were both taken into custody in Colorado, and the police contacted the registered owner of the vehicle, Twyla Pearson, Shante's ex-wife. Twyla and Shante had been married for about 10 years when Shante met Tiffany and separated from Twyla to be with Tiffany. The divorce papers were filed in late 2015, so this was a fairly recent divorce. While the truck was still in Twyla's name, Shante had physical possession of it through their separation and divorce. The police told Twyla that the truck would have to be returned to Milwaukee at her expense. We are talking a 15 and a half hour distance, so transport would be several hundred dollars, if not a thousand or more. So Twyla told her stepson Dominic, that's Shantae's adult son, that if he could get out to Colorado to pick up the truck, he could just keep it. Dominic managed to do just that. He went out there and drove the truck back. Meanwhile, back in the Milwaukee area, West Allis to be precise, a woman named Charlene Madosh called the police on May 14th to file a missing persons report. Her niece, 25-year-old Tess White, who had been living with her, left their home 10 days earlier, and Charlene hadn't heard from her since. Tess was born in June 1990 in Milwaukee to Lee and Kim White. Lee and Kim had three children total together before they split up. Lee was Potawatomi and Kim was Ojibwe, so Tess had two cultural influences in her life. The Potawatomi and Ojibwe have historically been allies and are two of the three tribes that make up the Council of Three Fires. 
Based on the records of French colonizers, it appears the Potawatomi lived in present-day southwestern Michigan in the early 1600s. It wasn't long after this that they were forced to move to the Green Bay area in present-day Wisconsin due to a conflict with another tribe. They were then pushed to Missouri and eventually to Oklahoma during the Indian Removal Act years. However, not all bands of the Potawatomi went south. Some managed to stay where they were, though on dwindling lands. Tessa's ancestors were among those people, now called the Forest County Potawatomi. She grew up in the Crandon area, she went to school there, and this is about three and a half hours from Milwaukee. On her mother's side, Tess was Ojibwe, specifically the Bad River Band of the Lake Superior Tribe of Chippewa Indians. You may be wondering why I'm saying she's Ojibwe and the band uses the name Chippewa. It's because first, the two names are referring to the same people, and second, and most importantly, Ojibwe is what Tessa's family uses. I don't get to tell someone what they are called. Could you imagine if I started, well, actually people about their nationality? The Bad River Band is in the Ashland, Wisconsin area on the shore of Lake Superior. According to their beliefs, the Great Spirit told them to move west until they found food that grows on the water. The band found wild rice on the shore of Lake Superior, and that's where they settled. They are still there, having essentially outlasted the Indian Removal Act attempts to change that. But there is actually a very awful story behind this. It took a tragedy to put public opinion against forcing them off their lands. And isn't that how it often happens out in our world? Something terrible happens, people get really upset about it, and suddenly the legislators are interested in helping. In this case, this is known as the Sandy Lake Tragedy. In 1850, the U.S. government tried to force the Ojibwe in the Lake Superior area to go west of the Mississippi to Sandy Lake, Minnesota. This was a move of about 100 miles or 160 kilometers. The U.S. government owed the Ojibwe money under two different treaties. The idea was to push the tribe and this money toward St. Paul, Minnesota and boost the economy there. But the tribe did not want to move off of their land, so in February 1850, President Zachary Taylor signed an executive order that ended the Lake Superior Ojibwe's land usage rights. Yes, the right to live on their own land. They just crossed it out with an executive order, and it applied to Ojibwe lands in both Wisconsin and Michigan. And that's not even the shadiest part of this whole thing. That was just step one. The tribe was still not going to move based on an executive order. They pointed to the treaties that they already had. But the U.S. government had the money that the Ojibwe were owed in their annual payment. So the government said the payment was going to be dispersed at Sandy Lake in Minnesota, And if they wanted the money, they were going to have to move there and get it. And believe it or not, that is still not the most underhanded thing that happened here. 
the government decided to delay the payment on purpose after the people got to Sandy Lake. What they wanted to do was force them to stay at Sandy Lake and not go back to their lands. So what they had to do was wait until everything froze over so the Ojibwe were essentially trapped at Sandy Lake for the winter. The Ojibwe were falsely told that the payment would be there on October 15th, and thousands showed up at Sandy Lake to get the money that was owed to them. It was over a month later that John Watros, the sub-agent making the payment, showed up. So they were there on October 15th. He didn't show up until November 24th. At that point, he found people literally dying because they had no money, and the rations provided by the government to tide them over were not only not enough, but a lot of the food was literally rotten. At this point, Congress hadn't even approved the payment, so Watros couldn't even administer it at that point. Because he was not a complete psychopath, he did try to get additional provisions to the people in the meantime. He used local traders who took advantage of the situation and charged exorbitant prices, but it was still not enough. By the time the payment arrived in mid-December, nearly two months after it was promised, around 170 Ojibwe had died in two months. And then, facing death if they stayed or death on the way home, many walked back to Wisconsin, 100 miles, in the middle of the winter. Have you been to Minnesota or Wisconsin in the winter? Over 200 more people died before the winter was over. The death toll of the Sandy Lake tragedy was around 400 people. It still took over the next four years for the Lake Superior Ojibwe to fight forced removal, and they managed to garner significant public support in a large part because of the death toll. In 1854, the Ojibwe signed a new treaty that gave them a permanent reservation on their lands, and any annual payments owed to them would be administered where they were, and they would not have to travel for it. So let's move up to present day with Tess White having ancestry in two tribes. It is remarkable that they were both in their lands when she was born, because with the Indian removal policies, we don't often see that. Tess was enrolled in the Potawatomi tribe. This is something that Native families often face because people in general cannot be enrolled in two tribes, even if they qualify for both. This is not a federal restriction. It falls under tribal sovereignty, and most larger tribes prohibit dual enrollment. It's not a situation where you have to disavow your other side. Tess was both Potawatomi and Ojibwe, even if she was only enrolled in one tribe but she could only be enrolled in one. It is a complicated issue that is really for Native people to discuss and debate, not me. I'm only bringing it up because it is going to come up again. 
Growing up in Forest County, Tess grew up surrounded by Potawatomi culture, and she loved traditional dancing. As a child, she hoped to become a veterinarian. Things got sidetracked through her life, especially in her teen years. Her home life has been described as rough. She left the home at the age of 15. Tess's father did have an alcohol use disorder. I don't know enough to say where he fell on that, but he did have repeated DUIs, which is a sign of alcohol addiction. After leaving home at 15, Tess moved a lot and she did start using drugs. In 2010, at the age of 20, she signed up for a rehab facility in South Dakota to get sober. Sobriety would be something that Tess tried to achieve over and over again because she did have dreams and goals she knew she was not going to reach if she was using drugs and alcohol. She also knew that due to her childhood trauma and pain, she would need help getting and staying sober. And that is why she went to the facility in South Dakota. Being clean was an on and off situation into Tess's 20s. Eventually, Tess moved in with her Aunt Charlene in Milwaukee. In July 2015, Tess was dealt another blow when her younger brother died at just 19. One report was that it was a drug overdose. We talk about generational cycles passed down like abuse and poverty. And I think here is a good time to talk about the cycle of addiction. This is not strictly genetic. A lot of the circumstances that contribute to substance abuse often exist in homes where one or both parents are addicted to drugs or alcohol. Trauma and exposure to substances are two big environmental factors that I can think of off the top of my head. Living with her Aunt Charlene was part of Tessa's plan to get and stay clean. Charlene has said in interviews that she saw Tess working on her spirituality in the hope it would heal things in her life that she was struggling with, the things that led her to substance abuse to begin with. And in return, Charlene said that Tess taught her what love was really like. And yet now here she was in May 2016 reporting her niece missing. Tess was 25, so staying out with friends, going to visit family for even days at a time wasn't unusual, but Charlene did try to call Tess to check on her, and it kept going straight to voicemail. That's when she got concerned and called the police. According to the police report, Charlene last saw Tess around 7.30 on May 4th. Charlene said that Tess came home, she grabbed some clothes that she threw into a bag, and then she left. The police report and the reporting in the media have a discrepancy in the next bit. The police report said that Charlene had previously seen, like two to three hours before, a white truck or SUV pull up to pick Tess up. But Tess wasn't ready to go, so the vehicle left without her. The media reporting says that Charlene saw Tess get into that same truck when she left at 7.30, though that's omitted in the police report that I saw. Regardless of when Charlene saw this vehicle, she told the police she had seen it 
before. It was the same truck that was usually parked in front of an apartment on 81st Street, where she would sometimes drop Tess off. After talking to Charlene, the investigator on the case tried Tess's cell number and got a recorded message saying no calls were being accepted on the phone. The police then proceeded to call people connected to Tess. They reached out to her mom, Kim White, and she said she had last heard from Tess on May 3rd. She also said Tess was about two months pregnant and the father was her boyfriend, Alex, who of course was someone else the police wanted to talk to. It was May 20th when they spoke with Alex. He said he texted Tess on the 4th and she said she was waiting on a ride to the mall. Tess had some clothes and shoes she was going to return to the store because she needed some money. Alex said Tess was going to the mall with her friend, Tiffany. So the investigators went back and talked to Charlene again, and she said Tess did discuss money issues with her on May 4th. She had wanted a ride to the bank so she could move her money from one account to another. The reason was that a woman named Tiffany had taken $20 from Tess's account using her ATM card without permission. Tess planned on confronting Tiffany about it, but she wanted to secure the rest of her money in the meantime. In the end, Tess changed her mind about going to the bank that day. She just packed up some clothes and left, presumably for the mall. The next tip came from a friend of Tess's named Sarah, and this tip didn't go straight to the police. It went to Charlene instead, which is not uncommon. Families get tips called in, especially from people they know, all the time. Sarah told Charlene that she heard the guy who had the white truck and drove Tess to the mall the last day she was seen had been arrested in Colorado for armed robbery. Sarah was told that there were people headed to Colorado to pick up the truck. Charlene then called the lead investigator on Tess's case with this information, so he was able to look it up. He got a stock image of the truck Tiffany Simmons and Shante Pearson were driving and showed it to Charlene. She said it was the same truck she usually saw parked in front of the apartment on 81st Street. That apartment on 81st Street was Shante Pearson's apartment. So now we have a bank robber on the run with his girlfriend being implicated in a missing persons case. A missing persons case that would very quickly become a homicide case when, on May 25th, Tessa's body was identified. Tessa's remains had actually been found on May 17th, when two farmers saw a blue plastic storage bin in a bean field in Grant County, South Dakota. Next to the bin, they saw charred human remains and called the police. The scene was secured, though it's not like fields in rural South Dakota get much foot or vehicle traffic, which was a good thing here because they were able to see and document the tire treads leading right up to where the body and bin were dumped. In the treads, they found a cellophane wrapper from a pack of cigarettes, the part that has the tax stamp on it. It was from Minnesota. 
That wasn't a huge clue since Grant County, South Dakota is just over the state line from Minnesota, so it wouldn't be unusual for someone to buy cigarettes in Minnesota and be in Grant County, but it was something. Inside the blue bin were plastic shopping bags that had shoes in them. One pair were a men's size 13 sneakers and the other were a women's size 10. There was also a cigarette lighter and lighter fluid. On the lid of the bin was a piece of tape with the words kitchen glass fragile written on it. And beside the bin were the remains. They had likely been doused in that lighter fluid, but probably some other fuel as well because the smell of an accelerant was very strong, even after they transported the body for autopsy. There was also some soil in the remains that didn't look like the soil in the bean field, which led to the question of if the body had been moved. They also noticed that there appeared to be a film over the head and face area like a thin melted plastic. On May 19th, the autopsy was performed. It was determined that the body was of a female around the age of 25. Though the cause of death could not be medically determined for sure, there was no evidence of soot in the airways, so the body was burned post-mortem. There were also remnants of a cord or rope around the neck, making strangulation likely, whether that was the cause of death or a factor in the attack on the victim. The remains of a 10-week-old fetus were also identified. DNA was able to be extracted from some deep tissue that hadn't been affected greatly by the fire or by decomposition. The DNA profile was complete and run through the South Dakota State Database within a week. And on May 25th, they got a hit to Tess White. It is unbelievable that Tess's DNA was in their system at all. She had spent the vast majority of her life two states away from South Dakota. This all stemmed back to that treatment program Tess enrolled in back in 2010. While she was there, she got into an altercation that led to her arrest, and I believe the arrest of the other person she was fighting with. Tess's DNA was taken when she was booked because South Dakota has some of the broadest DNA collection laws in the country. If you are arrested for a felony or any crime involving violence or a sex offense, you give your DNA at booking, not at arraignment, not conviction, at booking, which is pretty much step one in your legal process. Even if you later plead down to a misdemeanor, a nonviolent offense, or you're acquitted, your DNA stays in the system unless you go to court to have it expunged. It isn't automatically removed. And it's only under limited circumstances that the courts will agree to have your DNA taken out of the system. Had Tess gone to a treatment program elsewhere, or if she hadn't gotten into a fight while she was there, or if her killer left her remains in a different state, she would not have been identified so quickly, and possibly not at all. It's estimated there are 40,000 unidentified remains in the United States. 13,000 of those are in NamUs. When we see a John or Jane Doe case, 
and it doesn't get triggered by a matching missing persons file, we think, why didn't anyone report the missing? But how many times are cases solved and we find they were reported missing? Even a very famous Doe case, Joseph Newton Chandler, his family had reported him missing, and the file was in a drawer somewhere. We can't say for sure, but had things gone differently, there's a good chance Tess would have been a Jane Doe. Maybe not forever, but it certainly would have taken weeks or months to track her down, not days. But things didn't go differently. So the South Dakota investigators had a name, and they took Tess White's name and ran it through the national database. Her missing persons report popped up. Tess's family were then given the news that she had been murdered. But through another baffling set of circumstances, they were also able to tell the family that the prime suspects, Shantae Pearson and Tiffany Simmons, were already in custody on unrelated matters. They were only in custody because Tiffany didn't dim her high beams when she passed a cop, and he decided to pull her over. And not only that, this happened the day after Shantae Pearson was identified as a suspect in a bank robbery. Had this happened a day before, two days before, Shantae's warrant wouldn't have popped up and he would be free. In the time between Tess being reported missing and her body being found, her mother Kim became very ill, and she was actually in the hospital in a coma. Now, her son had died not even a year before this, and when she woke from her coma, her family would have to tell her that her daughter was dead as well. At this same time, Tess's father was in jail, awaiting sentencing on a DUI. So both of Tessa's next of kin were unable to organize anything to get her body back to have a funeral. Tessa's maternal grandmother, Janice, called the medical examiner in South Dakota to see if anyone had claimed the body, and she learned no one had. No one really had the authority to do so. So Janice went to a Bad River tribal judge where she filed for an emergency guardianship of Tessa's mother, Kim, while she was in the coma. With that guardianship, she could then act on behalf of Kim to get Tessa's body back for a funeral. The judge granted the guardianship on June 1st, and on June 3rd, Tessa's body, along with the remains of her unborn baby, were sent to Ashland, Wisconsin, for a traditional Ojibwe funeral. Janice wanted to wait until Kim was recovered enough to attend the funeral, so the family decided to wait nearly three more weeks in the hopes Kim could attend. But eventually they felt they just needed to let Tessa's spirit rest. The Ojibwe belief is that the spirit stays until the body is buried. On June 22nd, they started the Vigil of the Fire. This is essentially a 24-hour, round-the-clock wake that lasts for four days, with a fire being maintained during that entire time. But on day three of the Vigil of Fire, the funeral director showed up at the center where the wake was being held. 
He said he had been given a court order requiring him to take Tessa's remains back. Tessa's half-sister on her father's side, Shannon, had gone to court on behalf of their father, Lee, and a Milwaukee County judge signed an order that gave Shannon the right to determine burial and funeral arrangements for Tess. That judge was not aware of the earlier order from the Bad River tribal judge from three weeks ago. He also did not know that Tess's funeral was in progress. Janice and her attorney went to court to fight this order, and another judge granted a restraining order that prohibited anyone from burying Tess's remains until it could be settled at a hearing. Tess's paternal side said they had not intervened earlier because they thought Tess had already been buried. They were not aware that Janice had waited a few weeks in the hopes Kim would be able to attend. When they found out Tess hadn't been buried, they went to court. Their argument was that Tess was an enrolled member of the Forest County Potawatomi, she was raised in Forest County, and she should be buried according to their traditions at Stone Lake, where her brother was buried. Janice's argument was that Tess had been raised just as much in the Ojibwe tradition, which was the tribe her mother was enrolled in. Janice wanted to have Tess buried where her ancestors had been interred. She made a comment to the media referring to Tess's father's family as, quote, estranged family, which is implying that she didn't believe Tess had as much of a relationship with them as she did with her mother's side. This is where that issue of enrollment comes up that I mentioned before. One of the arguments here was that she should be buried where she was enrolled. So was Tess more Potawatomi than Ojibwe because of enrollment? I mean, that's not a question I'm answering. It's not a question for me to answer. But it was something that the court was being asked to consider. Although in the end, the hearing ended up not happening. The families reached an agreement instead. I imagine this was causing all of them a lot of stress on top of their grief. And the idea that Tessa's spirit was in a limbo since her death two months earlier had to have added some sense of urgency to get this resolved. The family decided that Janice would continue with the funeral plans that she had already made. Tessa's casket was returned to Bad River, and she was finally allowed to rest. During the time the family is dealing with all of this, the investigation continued in full force. Both the investigation into Shantae Pearson for the bank robbery and the investigation into Shantae and Tiffany Simmons for the murder of Tess White. The investigators were able to get DNA from one of the women's shoes found in that blue bin. On May 26th, they entered it into the National DNA Index System and they got a hit. It was for Tiffany Simmons. On June 9th, they interviewed Tiffany's mother, Vicky, who identified Shante as Tiffany's boyfriend. They showed her the blue bin from the crime scene. Vicky said the writing on the tape was actually her writing. That was her bin. She had it stored in her basement and had not, as of yet, even noticed it was missing. 
She did concede that Tiffany had access to it, and maybe she even loaned it to Shantae during a recent move. Also on June 9th, the police spoke with Shantae's ex-wife, Twyla. She said that on May 5th, Shantae asked her repeatedly for $500. She wouldn't give it to him, and he got angry with her. In her words, according to the criminal complaint, Twyla said Shantae sounded like his back was up against the wall. In looking at the Wisconsin court records, I can see that Twyla applied for a harassment restraining order against Shantae that same day. She didn't hear from him again, even though he had not been served with the restraining order. By the time they looked to serve him, he was on the run and then later in jail in Colorado, waiting to be extradited to Wisconsin. It was the day after Shantae demanded $500 from his ex that he robbed the bank and went on the run with Tiffany. Twyla said it was a few days after the robbery that her stepson, Shantae's son, called her and told her to check out the images from the bank robbery. He thought the robber looked like his dad and wanted her opinion. Twyla looked and said yes, that was Shantae. Extradited to Wisconsin and facing all of this evidence against them, 44-year-old Shantae Pearson and 34-year-old Tiffany Simmons confessed to their roles in the murder of Tess White. So let's go over these confessions, which, surprisingly, are pretty consistent with each other. I'll say from the top, Shantae did not confess to the bank robbery. He did confess to covering up Tess's murder, but he claimed he was not the one who killed her. Shantae said that on May 4th, he and Tiffany picked Tess up and brought her to the mall. Tess was mad at Tiffany for stealing the $200, and Tiffany, according to Shantae, was mad at Tess because she accused Tess of stealing her drugs. Tiffany also said that Tess had made threats against her. Shantae said after they went to the mall, Tess got into the truck in the front seat, and Tiffany was in the back seat. He drove around a little bit, waiting for his drug dealer to call him so he could go make a buy, and Tess and Tiffany started verbally arguing. At one point, Tess climbed into the back seat and the argument turned physical. Shantae said he was worried he would get pulled over if a police officer saw these two women fighting in his back seat, so he pulled over. Shantae went to the back seat and saw that Tiffany had Tess pinned down, so he pulled out some rope he had in the truck and tied Tess's hands behind her back. He then forced her to kneel on the floor of the truck. Shantae then drove around, bought the drugs, and went back to his apartment. He went inside, leaving Tiffany and Tess in the back seat. He said he went back and forth from the apartment to the truck a couple of times, but due to his drug use this day, his specific memories were fuzzy. Eventually, Shantae was inside when Tiffany came in, and the two smoked crack all night. In the morning, which was May 5th, Tiffany told Shantae they needed to hide the truck. She went to her mom's house and took her car, and then followed Shantae while he drove the truck and dumped it at a park. Shantae said he didn't actually know that Tess was dead in the truck until Tiffany showed up with a blue bin from her mom's house 
and said it was to put Tessa's body into it. She also asked him how long it took a body to decompose. I guess Shante apparently just thought they left Tess in the back of the truck all night alive. I mean, that's a story. He did say due to how high he was, he didn't remember exactly when things happened. Like, when did Tiffany show up with this blue bin? But he admitted he did know that morning at some point that Tess was dead. And he said he also knew they had to leave town. Shante tried to get money from his ex to fund them fleeing, but as we know, she said no. Shante again denied the bank robbery, though it really seemed quite the coincidence because he and Tiffany left town immediately after the bank robbery was committed by someone who looked exactly like him. But no, he didn't do it. He said that they dumped Tiffany's mom's car and picked up the truck with Tessa's body in it, and then they headed west. When they were in Minnesota, they bought two gas cans and filled them with kerosene. They then went out to a field and lit Tessa's body on fire. They drove to a laundromat that he said had a taxidermist shop attached to it, and they waited a few hours. Then they went back to the field and found that the body wasn't burned as much as they expected it would be. So they put the remains back into the blue bin and loaded it into the truck, deciding that they would figure out about disposing of it later. Using this information, particularly about the laundromat with the taxidermist next to it, the investigators were actually able to find the general area this happened. They pulled security footage and saw Shantae's truck parked outside of that laundromat early on May 9th. Shantae said they continued to drive west, entering South Dakota, before they pulled over again and again burned the body in a field. This time, they left behind the bin that had their shoes in it. As for why they left the bin, the shoes, and other evidence behind— Shante said they planned to go back for them when they returned to see if the body had burned. They intended to scatter whatever was left of Tessa's remains and also collect the evidence they left behind. But Tiffany said she thought someone may have seen them in the field, and they decided it was too risky to go back. No one had seen them, and had they gone back to remove the bin, the shoe with Tiffany's DNA on it, and Tessa's remains, again, she may never have been found, and this case may never have been solved. Again and again in this case, things aligned perfectly to bring it to justice. I am just not a terribly spiritual person myself, but I definitely can see how people are when things like this happen. It's like someone or something bigger than us said, this case is going to be solved, and everything fell into place so it would be. Shante said they continued their journey west with the goal of making it to Las Vegas where he had family, but obviously they didn't do that. They got stopped in Denver. Shante's confession put him in the apartment at the time of the actual murder, and he said he didn't know that Tiffany was going to kill Tess. And Tiffany's confession completely backs this up. This was not a case of two suspects throwing each other under the bus. Tiffany and Shante told nearly the exact same story. 
I mean, that doesn't mean they were completely telling the truth, though. There is one part of their stories that I question a bit. They both accused Tess of stealing drugs and of making threats. I think it's interesting that these accusations only come after Tess had proof that Tiffany stole $200 from her. And they only come up when Tiffany and Shantae need a motive for murder. And when Tess isn't around to defend herself. Not that my commentary is always necessary, but this sounds like deflection to me. The fight that Tess and Tiffany had in the truck could very well have only been about the $200 that Tiffany stole. Anyway, Tiffany's confession was pretty much the same as Shantae, but she was able to tell the investigators what happened in the truck after Shantae left. With Tess tied up, Tiffany said she punched and hit Tess and put out cigarettes on her, trying to get her to confess to stealing the drugs. She estimated the attack lasted around 45 minutes. Then Tiffany realized Tess would go to the police and report the assault and battery. Being on probation, Tiffany knew she would be facing significant legal consequences. In this month's Patreon bonus episode, I did mention there are two types of probation violations, and for those of you not on Patreon, let's go over those again. One violation is a technical violation. What you did by itself isn't illegal, but it is against the terms of your probation or your parole like, say, drinking alcohol or moving out of state. Now, the other violation is that you committed another crime. This is by far the worst violation, and it can see you back in jail for the remainder of your sentence on that original charge, plus you're facing the sentence for the new charges. Tiffany was not new to the criminal justice system or new to probation. She knew what was going to happen, and she decided she wanted to avoid years in prison. She decided that it was worth it, killing Tess White, knowing full well Tess was pregnant, if she could avoid jail time. Tiffany said she first tried to suffocate Tess. She gagged her with plastic shopping bags while holding her nose shut. But Tess fought back and managed to spit the bags out of her mouth. So Tiffany instead put the bags on Tessa's head and strangled her to death with more of that rope that was in the truck. The bags were still on Tessa's head when they set her body on fire, which is what left behind that film that the first responders saw. Tiffany said she then laid Tessa's body on the floor of the truck and covered it before she went inside to smoke crack with Shantae. This was around 11 p.m. or midnight. Tiffany then said in the morning she started getting worried, not sure when the body would start smelling, when it would be obvious to others that Tess was missing, and she wanted to get rid of the body and the truck as soon as possible. And then the rest of her story pretty much continued the way Shantae had already described. Now, because the murder occurred, according to both confessions, in Wisconsin, Wisconsin had jurisdiction even though the remains were found in another state. Tiffany was charged with first-degree intentional homicide, kidnapping, and hiding a corpse. 
Shante was charged with felony murder for causing death while committing a kidnapping, robbery of a financial institution, and hiding a corpse. Both pleaded not guilty. So then we see the usual delays and pretrial motions and hearings that we see in cases like this. The defense attorneys are trying to get statements thrown out. They're trying to get evidence thrown out. There's conversation over whether they'll be tried together or separately, and so on. Both confessions were deemed admissible at trial, which was going to be a huge hurdle for the defense teams. Tiffany's trial was initially scheduled for 2017, and then it was rescheduled to June of 2018, which would have been a full two years after her arrest. In January 2018, Tiffany's attorneys filed a motion demanding a speedy trial, so it was moved up to April of 2018. And a month before the trial was set to start, a plea deal was struck. It was not much of a deal. Tiffany pleaded guilty to the homicide and the kidnapping charges while the hiding a body charge was dropped. There was very little Tiffany got from this plea deal except the hope the judge would take this guilty plea into consideration at sentencing and view it in the light of Tiffany taking accountability and responsibility. Shantae, though, was still intending on going to trial. And I think that would have been a good strategic move for him. While there was a lot of evidence against him, like his confession, the worst charge by far was the felony murder charge. Under this charge, Shantae didn't have to commit the murder to be convicted. Engaging in the felony of kidnapping when a death occurred qualified him for the charge, even if he didn't kill Tess, he didn't intend for her to die, and he wasn't even aware it happened until the next morning. She died while he was committing the felony of kidnapping. Therefore, it's felony murder. Now that said, just because you qualify for a charge doesn't mean you can't sway a jury into deciding what you did really isn't worth sending you to prison for the rest of your life for it. On the first day of jury selection, Shante pleaded guilty to the bank robbery in what was surely a strategic move. They had actual footage of him robbing a bank. It would have been difficult to convince a jury that it wasn't him, and it may have even damaged his credibility. If he's lying about doing something they can literally watch him doing, surely he could be lying about the rest of it. Jury selection proceeded for the trial for the other two counts, felony murder and hiding a corpse. On day two, the state made an oral motion to amend the felony murder charge to kidnapping as a party to a crime. This was the first sign that a plea deal had been reached. Shante then pleaded guilty to the amended charge, and the charge for hiding a body was dropped. Through this plea deal to a lesser charge, Shante avoided a life without parole sentence, and this spared Tessa's family the ordeal of a trial. Tiffany was sentenced first, and the prosecutor said that this was one of the most brutal crimes he had confronted during his career. Tiffany admittedly tortured her pregnant friend for 45 minutes before killing her. 
Her defense attorney asked for mercy, saying that the murder had not been planned. Tiffany suffered from substance abuse issues and mental illness and had so for her entire adult life. He pointed out that Tiffany had admitted to what she did and she took responsibility for it by pleading guilty. But the judge was not buying the responsibility angle. She said that Tiffany and Shantae burned Tess's body and left it in another state. Tiffany's intent was to never face accountability for what she had done. If she succeeded, that would have left Tess's family without any answers and Tiffany free and clear. Tiffany didn't confess until she was confronted with DNA evidence left at the crime scene, and she didn't plead guilty for a year and a half until she was facing trial. The judge also pointed out that Tiffany was given probation on another charge, less than three months before the murder. And in that time, she had never met with her probation officer and didn't comply with the terms she had agreed to. She just didn't seem like a good candidate for release. So Tiffany was sentenced to life in prison without parole for the murder. She got an additional 25 years on the kidnapping charge. Shantae was then sentenced to a maximum term of 25 years on the kidnapping count with at least 15 years in prison and 10 years on extended supervision. Shantae then got the exact same sentence for the bank robbery. These sentences were to be served consecutively, and he got no credit for time served. Tiffany has filed an appeal, but it has not been heard. Shantae appealed on a few points, including the voluntary nature of his plea, the length of his sentence, and the effectiveness of his attorney. In 2020, it was denied on all points. Also in 2020, Wisconsin formed their Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women Task Force. I talked about this in a previous episode where I talked about unsolved cases from the Menominee tribe. The mission of the task force is to focus on the factors that contribute to the disproportionate numbers of missing and murdered Indigenous women. On the task force are women from both Forest County Potawatomi and the Bad River Band of the Lake Superior Tribe of Chippewa Indians, both sides of Tess White, working to protect women like her. Thank you for listening. You can find Crimelines on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok. Crimelines is also on YouTube, where I post two to three true crime videos a week, including an occasional after show where we go over any visuals from that week's podcast episode. Crimelines is also on Patreon, where I offer early and ad-free episodes as well as bonus content. Visit patreon.com crimelines. And if you want to buy me a coffee, the official drink of Crime Lines, you can give a one-time donation at basementfortproductions.com slash support. And if you need a palate cleanser after listening to heavier true crime shows, check out Rusty Hinges, an occasionally funny history, mystery, and true crime podcast that I co-created and write for. <laughs> <laughs>